This Sunday marks the first Sunday of the church season, Advent. Advent means the arrival or the coming. For us specifically, Advent has two focuses. We celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus, born a child and yet a king, born to set his people free. He is the Word made flesh, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Lamb of God, the light of the world. He is the one born to us and for us. And we celebrate his arrival this Advent season. The other focus is we also look ahead in hope during the season of Advent to the second coming of Jesus, when he shall come at last to judge between the living and the dead and to take us to be with him and all those who have gone before us in the faith to heaven with him for all eternity. And so as we look through our Old Testament text this morning and really through all of Advent season, we're going to see this longing for the Messiah to come. And with that, as we read, a longing that we read on the other side of the Messiah already coming, Jesus, to return once and for all. And also throughout Advent, there's all those great stories we get to read about the birth of Jesus, about Mary visited by the angel, Joseph and his dream about the baby, John the Baptist's parents finding about having a baby in their old age, the baby that leaps in the womb, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, and of course, Jesus born in a manger. One that I was thinking about is sitting right here next to me was those wise men. Now you remember that the wise men come after the baby is born. The wise men sought the newborn king Jesus. They followed the star to know where to go and what path they were supposed to take. And likewise today, we also seek Jesus, but not to find him, but to know more of him, to be like him, to live the life that he has called us to. Our star to guide us is his word. And we are to look to the word to guide us in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I would have to say that reading the word and praying are the two biggest recommendations I make to people who ask me how to follow Jesus and grow in their faith. I know. Surprise, surprise. Read the Bible. Pray more. And I've said this before. This comes from Eugene Peterson. The idea here is that you read as you live. You live as you read. You pray as you live. You live as you pray. There shouldn't be a separation between your life and time in the word and praying. They should flow together. Now, when I get asked, folks tend to always ask for, well, can you clarify what you mean by prayer? Like, how should I pray? What can I use as a guide when I pray? How do you pray? Questions like that. And so we sit, we work through that. But with the word, no one really ever asked me, what do you mean read the Bible more? They just say, okay, I can do that. But like, where should I start? They rarely have ever asked me, well, how do I read the Bible? And this is actually an important question because the Bible is to be read differently than any other book. It can be read, of course, for information. It can be read for the stories. It can be read to be analyzed, critiqued, quoted, and a number of other things too. But it's to be read differently than any other book that you read as its purpose and its core. I think of when Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 5, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. When Paul says that in Jesus, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form, meaning that all the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, his glory are disclosed and found in Jesus alone. See, the Bible was written to transform your mind and your life, to by the Spirit bring you into eternal life 
as you come to know and believe in Jesus. Jesus is the key and the center, the purpose. The rest of those things like wisdom and what to do all aligns. But if you miss Jesus, then there is no point in even beginning to read the Bible. John 20, 31 says this, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Not only does John summarize for us how we are to read and what the purpose of God's word is to us, John has this way of writing in such a unique way through his gospel. He uses words to paint pictures in your minds. His words are, are vivid and colorful, especially how he uses light and darkness, taking time to make sure we can see the light, we can see the darkness, that we see Jesus whenever he writes in the eternal life he offers. And Katie, you can throw that one down because many of the Old Testament texts we read and focus on during Advent actually come from Isaiah who likewise uses vivid and colorful language, writes in a way that gives us these amazing images in our minds as we read. And when you read the book of Isaiah, you come across something very unique at the beginning. The opening phrase, the vision of Isaiah in chapter 1, is a bit unusual. More frequently, when you open up those prophetic books, you have a heading or an opening that says, the word or the words according to such and such prophet. But in this book, in the book of Isaiah, which we come back to time and time again throughout the Advent season, Isaiah is relaying a vision for Jerusalem in three stages. He's talking, yes, about their destruction, their exile, but he's also talking about the expectation of the new thing and a reorganization of how it will all end, which we know has come in Jesus and will be fulfilled at his second coming. But Isaiah just has this beautiful way of writing in which we can't help but see his vision as well. Maybe we can't see it physically, but in a spiritual way that is deep and just as real and complete when we see Jesus by spending time in his word. Isaiah and John use language very similarly. And wouldn't you know it that John has a vision too. He actually saw like Isaiah writes here and records it in Revelation. And wouldn't you know it, both like to use light. So let's dive into our text today. If you brought your Bibles with you, you're going to open up to Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to look at the first five verses in Isaiah, and we're going to go through that section of Scripture and unpack as it points us to Jesus and also points us to Jesus' second coming. This is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. If you didn't bring your Bibles, you can, of course, follow along with me on the screens behind. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This first verse here is a reminder that, again, this is no ordinary scene. The author's choice of the verb here, hazah, elevates the scene to that spiritual height and depth, this prophetic vision. 
Rather than just seeing something physically, Isaiah here beholds the word. And so he sees now the world in an extraordinary way. And I want you to hold that in your mind and in your heart. That when you behold the word, you see the world in an extraordinary way. You see wonder. You see hope. You see purpose. And that longing restlessness that our hearts experience is turned into joy. Troubled minds find peace. And you know as well as I do that the world is not just rainbows and butterflies. There is pain here. There is brokenness. Pain and brokenness that is seen and experienced. But to behold the word allows you in that waiting time. And you find that your faith is shaking. To see the gentle touch of God in your life as he pulls you close in kindness. Allows you to see in the world the helplessness, the vulnerability that is around you. Not as something to be ignored or taken advantage of or even feared. But instead, when you behold the world, you follow Jesus and go into the places to bring healing, reminding those that have nothing that they are not alone. The word made flesh comes to them. And friends, it is Jesus working through the word, working through you, working through his sacraments who does this. That is the power that comes when you behold the word and you are sent out into the world. Verse 2 says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains, exalted above the hills. All the nations will stream to it. It's interesting to note that everyone in Israel would know that this mountain being mentioned is in reference to Mount Zion, which is a, a hill in Jerusalem. It was the place where the God of Israel dwelled, the place where he was king, the place where David was installed as king. It was the seat of the action of God in history. This isn't the tallest mountain or even the tallest hill in Jerusalem, not by a long shot, and it's not actually all that impressive. But the prophet sees that it will be the one exalted, the one raised so much so that all the nations will see the mountains of the Lord and stream like water toward the place of presence and will come to worship. What a beautiful word image in your mind. You can see it, can't you? That idea of streaming everyone, people streaming everywhere to go up to the mountain. But did you notice anything interesting in the way that Isaiah describes the direction? Water usually flows from a mountain, flows down. And here the people will flow to it. They are moving toward the peak, toward the center. All those who are wandering in darkness will draw to the light, to the mountain. Pastor Tim talked about that city on a hill last week, didn't he? The idea that they were teaching or being taught by Jesus and he pointed and you could look and see and you couldn't miss it. You know, there are two strong meanings based on that verb of stream here. There's flow like a river and then there's shine and joyful radiance. And as you move towards the center, as you move towards the mountain, the nations, the people from every tribe and language are transformed as they draw closer. And in their transformation, they become fresh. They become sustained. They know the source of life and growth. And the world will see their joy 
and their light as they celebrate the divine presence on earth, that receiving, that reflecting, that radiating the light of God. They become the light of the world. Now, as people who come after the Messiah has already arrived, come after the Lord's death and resurrection, we see that while Mount Zion may have been what was, in, was initially the point, this was really pointing to a fulfillment of a very different hill, was it not? A hill or a mount where Christ was crucified. And how in that victory, his exaltation came by way of death. And it was there on that hill that Jesus did away with the power of death, the power of the devil, the power of sin. And still to this day, do not every single nation, people from every nation still stream to that mountain where they find that the blood of the Lord flows down, covering his chosen ones, where the waters of baptism unite us not only to the death of Jesus, but to his life eternal and the life he lived. And it is the word that speaks to us here in the text and from one to another that draws us close to Jesus. How can we be satisfied? How can we truly be alive if we are not in God's word every day? Is there nothing like it that can draw us close to him as his word does daily? I'll use a human example. How hard is it to be in relationship with someone when you can't speak to them? When you don't hear their voice, the word is key every day. It allows you to push past those other hills that you see that have become diversions, interruptions, that twist and become obstacles and keep us from being close and drawing close to him. Scripture says, let us throw off the sin, the distractions that hinder us and stream to the mountain where he is. Advent season calls you to Jesus in the midst of all these holiday distractions. Never forget that the season itself, the services, the special events, these events were designed to serve you so that you could experience Jesus more deeply. They were not designed to stress you out or overwhelm you or distract you. Advent Wednesdays were created so that you would slow down in this season and remember Children sing so that they would slow down and remember the true purpose of our Savior's birth on Christmas. So that the way that we walk and talk during this season and every season is one that is slowed down with Christ in the center. Even our text says that the nations will come and leave walking and speaking, will be changed, transformed. Walking is always a metaphor for conduct and commitment to God's righteousness and speaking, speaking hope. And truth to one another. And look at this next verse here in verse 3. It says, let us go up. They invite one another and go together. Now the promises in this text here are utterly absurd. Especially when you look at ancient Israel's history. The mountain of the Lord, the temple mount Zion, I already told you, not the most prominent mountain let alone was it known for anything except for where the Jews worshipped. God coming down, settling the disputes for many peoples. No nations were streaming to Jerusalem to be divinely taught. Maybe they were streaming to conquer Jerusalem, but not to learn anything. End of war? 
war always has been going on. Whatever realities this text is speaking of here, if we look at it rationally, they can only exist in the realm of promise and hope. Not in the realm of what we've seen with our eyes or what history has shown us. And think about today. Has this happened? Can we say that this happens when abortion to the point of birth has become legal? We don't find that on the mountain. Can we say that this has happened when the image of God and how we were created has been twisted to be whatever you want it to be? Can we say that this has happened when we spend more time Googling than we do praying? When corporations and profits seem to be the only thing that seems to get attention and mattering? When mobs in the streets carry guns and signs that say God is love at the same time bringing hate. When war continues to afflict and bring suffering. Can we say that we have streamed to the mountain and that God himself has settled this when we've now become convinced that if the laws of our nation, well, they will save us. Which mountain do do we find ourselves going to? Take it another step. Because similar things could be said, well, maybe is Jesus come back yet? Because I don't see him. It's been quite a long time. 2,000 years is quite a long time. You're saying that Christ is going to return, but I look around, I think that's absurd. You're saying that truth will defeat falsehood. What is truth? You're saying that the dead will rise. Show me, besides your Jesus, who has risen from the dead. You are saying that the forces of evil are going to be destroyed. Are they not stronger now than they ever have been? You're saying that death will be done away with. I can list five people who I know personally who have died in the last month and a half. And just look at the tragedy in history and real life. This promise of Christ's return, this promise of his grace and peace. It contradicts everything that I see with my own eyes. And maybe in your own life, you've felt some contradictions. You've been waiting for that sign, waiting for that moment that something is going to change, something is supposed to be happening. Welcome to Advent. You know, God made four seasons. Maybe not here in California, but there are four. And the plants grow in one. One that follows a lot of rain and a lot of waiting. And isn't it interesting to think that here in the coldest time of the world, that there are some places that even have snow. Here, hope arises like a tiny light. Hope arrives in the form of a child. The reality, friends, is that we exist between the promises of God and the end. And what we see as we wait in that reality between promise and the end certainly looks a lot like it did before the promise came. But it also doesn't. Because the prophet probably didn't know that when he said that they would go to the mountain, that God himself would climb a mountain. And that God himself would refuse to stay on one mountain. 
that God was not satisfied being separated from you by all of this evil and wrong. That God was not satisfied speaking to you from afar or through others' words. And so he became flesh and dwelt among you. And that on the mountain, when you were too weak to stand, blinded by the darkness, he picked up the cross and our shame to go and die for us and then refused to stay there and by his spirit has made his home in you has through the power of his son through the words of his gospel taught you himself what it means to love one another so that even while war rages he has shown us how to take weapons of death and destruction and turn them into something that would bring life instead he took the most gruesome killing machine in history and turned it into the symbol of hope and turns around and sends you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them not to get ready for war, but to become peacemakers. I don't necessarily think this text is saying take our guns and swords, melt them down and turn them into shovels, though I do know that there are places that are doing that. But I see sword here, and I remember a verse from Proverbs that talks about the tongue. The tongue has sword thrust, and how James talks about controlling the tongue. And I think how Jesus turns his mouth of mind, this mouth in which evil and destruction can speak out of, and says, use it as something to build, to encourage how he looks at each one of us and gives us the ability to speak to our children and to those in our lives words of hope and promise, even when our eyes see differently. I see spears here turned into pruning hooks, and I can't help but think about John 15, about a vine and branches and being pruned, and how we must stay connected to the word of God. Otherwise, it is for nothing. The call here to change is personal. And it's why it closes here in verse 5 saying, Come, descendants of Jacob's, chosen ones, connected, baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and walk in the light of the Lord. Because the call is to you and I, his children, to hold light. Because his light is life. His light is goodness. His light is joy. It's revelation and truth. It is linked to justice and righteousness and salvation and healing. Jesus, the light, is what makes it possible to do what he has called you to do. You know, the first time we hear light after Genesis is in Egypt when the Egyptians are struck blind with the darkness, but the people of Israel could see because they had the light of God. They moved from the slavery to freedom. Your God has promised a light to come into your life and to show you how to move past the power of sin and death and the devil. And the birth of your Jesus is the sign that that light has dawned that God has come and in the promise we wait and in the promise 
and in the waiting. He says, take those instruments of death, take that cross, put it on your back, and follow me, walk in my light. And as the band comes up, I'll, I'll close with this. The promises of God do not falter. Maybe they don't happen by our fast food timeline, but they do not falter. We trust in the truth of our Lord and we trust in his faithfulness. We have become certain that the word tells us who God is, that God is a God of light and a God of love and a God of mercy, that he is the heavenly king that has been born to us and for us. In this Advent season of hope, of peace, of joy and love, we keep Christ as the candle in the center giving him the room to live, to breathe in us via the word. And maybe as we look at these Old Testament texts, we don't discover something new here today. It's not a big revelation to be in God's word, to keep Jesus center in your life, to hold to his truth, to hold to his promises. But we do find something in the time of Advent that calls you to recenter yourself, to anchor yourselves to light, the light of Jesus. The power of the word is the life that it brings. And as you run around and get from here to there, from party to event, don't forget to stop and take rest and to live in the light of your Lord Jesus.